Last year, Donald Trump carried Ohio by the large margin of eight points. With us today, a man who carried that state by 21 points. The junior senator from the great state of Ohio, Rob Portman, on Uncommon Knowledge Now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. We're filming today in the Tower Room of Baker Library at Dartmouth College. After graduating from Dartmouth as a member of the class of 1978, Rob Portman took a law degree at the University of Michigan, practiced law for a time, and then went into politics. From 1993 to 2005, he served in the House of Representatives, representing the 2nd District of Ohio. From 2005 to 2006, he served as the United States Trade Representative, and from 2006 to 2007 as the Director of Office of Management and the Budget, holding both those positions, Trade Rep and OMB, under President George W. Bush. Rob Portman was elected to the Senate from Ohio in 2010 and then re-elected, re-elected resoundingly just last year. Senator Portman, welcome. Peter, good to be with you again. Okay, the unavoidable question first. The Senate testimony this past week of former FBI Director James Comey. What did he tell us about President Trump that we didn't already know? I don't think there was much new, honestly. And although it was the uh, event of the uh, decade, maybe, in Washington. The coverage was unbelievable. You know, three bars actually uh, had live coverage and offered free beer uh, on big screen TVs. You mean you went Capitol from Hill. bar to bar to bar? <laughs> I didn't attend those, but <laughs> it was almost a spectacle. No, I, I don't think there was a whole lot new, but I, you know, I do think that it's appropriate that we do have this special Council and have a review of, of the, the meddling of Russia in our election. I think it's appropriate that the Intelligence right. Committee is doing its, its work. Uh, but I think uh, most of what we heard uh, with regard to this particular interview in public, uh, we already knew. All right. On a scale of zero is there's really nothing, nothing for us to pay attention to, to 10, which is a full Watergate. What are we in for this summer? Are we in for the horrible, long summer of intensely partisan hearings? I, you know, I hope not, because we have a lot of work to do yes. uh, in other areas, and it will be a great distraction if it becomes a highly partisan effort. And um, you know, if we uh, spend our focus on that, we won't be doing things to help save the healthcare system that's crumbling, or deal with infrastructure, or tax reform, uh, or the spending issues that we have to deal with. So there's lots more to do. Uh, I do think that this issue of Russia meddling, not just in our election, uh, but their interference in democracies around the world, is a serious issue. And as you know, it's one that I've talked right. about for a long time, uh, even long before this last election. In fact, we passed legislation uh, last year that helps to deal with this by establishing you know, a new interagency office that can actually analyze what's happening and be able to respond more quickly, particularly on the Internet. Uh, it is a concern. It's been a concern in the UK uh, and in France and in Germany recently with their elections. It's a big concern in Ukraine and other countries right. in Eastern Europe. So, so, we, we, so we, we do need to understand what's happening and, and be able to more effectively push back. So as far as a sober, serious, respected member of the Senate is concerned, this is not, at this stage in any event, about President Trump. Mm -hmm. This is very much, or should be very much, about Russia. We know there's a problem there. It should be, and it should be, again, about democracies worldwide that are being affected by this. And, and what it is, we call it disinformation, propaganda. Um, it is literally putting out information that's not accurate to be able to destabilize and, and make more difficult uh, democracies to have fair elections. And, 
that's a big deal, and we should be responding to that. Uh, as we unfortunately find ourselves in another situation with uh, Russia that's very similar in some respects to the Cold War in terms of that disinformation, we have to have better tools in the modern era to be able to respond. And again, a lot of that's being more effective online. All right. Healthcare. It was a struggle, but the House of Representatives did pass a bill and send it over to the Senate, and Majority Leader McConnell has named you and about a dozen other members of the Republican caucus to go into a closed room and hash out a bill that can get at least 50, 50 votes in the Senate so the Vice President can pass a deciding vote. Why is health care, just a sort of threshold question, why is health care so hard? As a legislative matter, why is it so hard? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think, Peter, part of it is because our system is so um, diffuse. In other words, you have uh, Medicare and Medicaid, obviously. You also have the employer-based system where most people uh, are getting their coverage who are not at Medicare or Medicaid. Uh, you have the, ind the individual market. Uh, obviously, you have the Obamacare side of this now, which is these exchanges. Right. And even within each of these groups I'm talking about, there are various programs. And so everything you touch has an effect somewhere else. Uh, it's not easy to simply, with one uh, stroke you know, of a, of a pen, write legislation that fixes our healthcare system because it is so complicated and there's so many interactions. I do think that we're in a situation now that we have to step forward right. and do something about really two problems. One mm -hmm. is the very high cost of premiums, deductibles, co-pays. You know, I hear a lot from my constituents on this. As you can imagine, we've had almost a doubling of health care premium costs in the individual market in Ohio just in the last four years, 82% increase for mm -hmm. small businesses. No one can afford that. These right. double-digit increases continue. Uh, and then second is it's really not a system that's working in terms of providing choice and competition. There's not transparency on costs. Uh, and this has been a long-time concern, well, well before the Affordable Care Act, mm -hmm. which helped to create the more recent problems. Uh, that, of course, is being... Uh, evidenced today by a lot of insurance companies literally pulling out of markets. So just Anthem announced, what, just a couple of days ago, they're pulling out of 18 days. counties in Ohio. Yeah. There'll be 18 counties in Ohio with zero insurers in this marketplace, the so-called exchange at zero. Uh, there'll be another 20 to 25 counties with only one insurer, and that's not competition. So we have to act, uh, both because of the high increase, the skyrocketing increase of costs for every American, every small business, uh, but also because of the fact that the system is not working. And by the way, if Hillary Clinton had been elected, we would have to go in and fix this. I mean, this is not about Republicans trying to get rid of something. It's about fixing a system that's not working. It has to be fixed. Uh, last week, I, was, I do what I can to follow this. Last week or 10 days ago, Senator Burr of North Carolina said he doubted that the Senate would be able to move on health care before the end of the year. And yet over the last couple of days, there have been stories in New York Times, there was something on the television this morning that you may have a bill within a week? What's the state of play? Well, I think six days is a little ambitious, uh, but I do think something can be done uh, before the August recess, which is a time when Congress really goes back to their you know, August work right. period. And it may not be the final bill, but I think we can, we can pull something together. Uh, we'll see. I mean, my big concern about the House bill, as you know, is I think it went too far in terms of pushing people off of Medicaid, which is right. an incredibly important program to can, can poor I, Americans and the working poor, and uh, I think there's a better way to do that, and that's one thing we're working on. Okay, so let me just ask that last question on health care. Some states, including Ohio, used Obamacare to expand their Medicaid roles, taking federal money to do so, right? Mm -hmm. And senators from those states, including the good se junior senator from Ohio, mm -hmm. 
want to phase that out very slowly, or, and, or let's put it this way, very carefully. Mm -hmm. And then you've got some states, such as Texas, mm -hmm. which did not use Obamacare to expand its Medicaid roles, and some senators from those states, including Ted Cruz, who have said over and over again, perhaps not recently now that you're working together on hashing out a compromise, that the states that expanded their Medicaid roles did so irresponsibly. Mm -hmm. Don't take federal money, it's not reliable, okay. So you've got Rob Portman and Ted Cruz among those senators in the room trying to hash things out. I've seen you with Ted Cruz. I know you're genial with each other, but I also know you are very different kinds of Republicans. How's this going to get sorted out? Well, first, it's no longer a small group. It's now a 52-member group because, as you noted, everybody's you need, invited you need 50, 50 votes, and right, so okay. everybody's got a different point of view on health care because it is so complicated. Uh, and so there's an opportunity for all members to engage now, which I think is really good, and all I right. encourage that. But having said that, you're right. About 60% plus of Americans are in states where there was expanded Medicaid, uh, meaning that individuals um, up to 138% of poverty rather than 100% of poverty were, were able to get coverage. And some states have, have done it in a way that uh, required some flexibility from Washington by getting a waiver right. in very creative ways and innovative ways to actually help to get more people into a managed care system and to have uh, pay for performance, in other words, for good outcomes rather mm -hmm. than just uh, a fee-for-service type program. So there's a lot of good things that have been going on. We want to preserve those good things because it covers more people and it right. gives them better health care outcomes. So that's one thing I'm working on. But you're right. Some states that did not expand uh, think that it is unfair that those states that expanded, like ours, have this opportunity. My view is, uh, you know, let's work together and come up with something that works for all these states. I will tell you, uh, Peter, there's one issue that, unfortunately, is it is it crisis proportions now in our country that is affecting Medicaid uh, more than any other payer, and that is the opioid crisis that you and I have talked about before. Right, right. And this means uh, heroin, prescription drugs that are uh, painkillers and addictive, uh, increasingly these synthetic heroines called fentanyl or carfentanyl, U4. And in my own state, as an example, those people who are on expanded Medicaid, which is about uh, 700,000 people in my state, 50% uh, of the cost is going for one thing right now, and that is for mental health and substance abuse treatment. 50% of the cost. So this has been an issue, as you know, I've worked on uh, for many years, yes, over 20 have. years, and I feel strongly that we need to not just have a situation where there's not an abrupt change in that so people can be able to get on their feet, but also we need some longer-term solutions to ensure people can get into the treatment programs they need. If they don't, those people are uh, back in the emergency rooms, back in jail. Um, as you know, the crime rate has increased because it's the number one cause of crime in my, in my state. It's the number one cause of death in my state. And uh, so we I'll do need to there. ensure this. Overdoses and other uh, uh, deaths related in one way or another to opioid addiction is the number one cause of death in Ohio now? It's now surpassed car accidents. It's surpassed homicides. It's surpassed suicides. Uh, and it's growing, unfortunately. Uh, Give you an example, in one city, Cleveland, Ohio, in a couple of weeks since Memorial Day, there have been 43 people who have overdosed and died. Um, and you compare that to last year, it's, it's almost a doubling in that time period. Now, we've passed some legislation that's starting to help, but my point is that Medicare and Medicaid uh, are both important programs. Um, Medicaid, in particular, is the, the biggest payer in terms of the treatment programs that you want to get people who are addicted involved with so that they can get out of this cycle. Right. and get back on their feet and get back to work and get back with their families. So this is one of the reasons I've been so involved in ensuring that we not only have a smooth landing, but that we have 
a way to ensure these people can continue to get the treatment that they need. All right. Defense. We're in shooting wars right now against the Taliban in Afghanistan, against ISIS in Iraq. The Russians are adding 100 ships to their navy in the next three years. The Chinese are challenging us in the South and East China Seas. Iran continues to defy us. And North Korea is developing ballistic missiles that will soon, very soon, some say, be capable of delivering nuclear weapons to American territory. Senator Rob Portman quoted in May in Newsmax, quote, we have to do more to protect our country right now. The Trump administration has proposed an increase in defense spending next year of about $50 billion. And that sounds like a staggering sum. It is a staggering sum. It's an increase of 10%. Mm-hmm. Is that enough? Uh, it's enough as a first step. Uh, but Peter, we have a real problem right now. Uh, our readiness is not up to the task. So you talked about a more dangerous and volatile world, and you named some of the risks uh, that we have right now facing us that uh, are really unprecedented, at least uh, since World War II. And the question is, you know, will America be able to project force to be able to keep the peace? You know, this is not about uh, America wanting to expand what we're doing in terms of you know, kinetic activity, military activity overseas. It's being able to frankly get some of these players you talked about, uh, you know, whether it's the Iranians, whether it's the North Koreans, uh, whether it's what's going on on the eastern border of Ukraine or in Syria or in Libya, and to say, you know, America has the capability to be able to step in, and therefore, uh, we should have a, you know, a, a response by them that leads to a more peaceful world. Ronald Reagan said it best, you know, peace comes from strength. Right. And uh, many countries looking at our readiness realize that not only don't we have the ships that uh, you talked about the Russians building new ones, many of our ships are at dock because we right. cannot send them out because our military has been cut to the point that we don't have the readiness we need. We don't have uh, planes that can fly. We don't have uh, pilots that are uh, able to train as they should. Um, and so uh, this, is a, this is a problem. I think this is the right first step. I think we also need to be sure that the Pentagon spends it wisely. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of room uh, to have reforms at the Pentagon in terms of waste uh, and particularly with regard to procurement. Whereas mm-hmm. you know we've had a lot of big projects be way over budget yes. and behind time. So I think it's a combination of things, but it requires more funding now. Okay, so let me ask you, because you were director of OMB, there are very few people who actually know the budget the way you know the budget. As a former director of OMB, and simply because I have to say, after knowing you for some years now, that's the way your mind works. You actually enjoy understanding the details of this vast apparatus. Two-thirds of the federal budget is now locked up in entitlements. So even to propose a modest increase in defense spending, the Trump administration has had to propose really quite draconian cuts Mm -hmm. across the small portion of the budget that is now discretionary. Mm -hmm. So we've heard about 30% cuts in the State Department. Mm -hmm. Good question whether they could even get close to that in your, when when it comes time for for you and your colleagues to take a vote. Mm -hmm. But people have been saying for years now, Bill Bradley during the 80s, Patrick Moynihan in the beginning in the late 70s, that if we're not careful, entitlement spending is going to squeeze out our ability to defend ourselves. It will squeeze out defense spending. Is that evil day upon us now? It's, it's been upon us. In other words, uh, not taking on the, uh, the task of dealing with the two-thirds of the budget. It's actually growing to three-quarters of the budget uh, within the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. That is on autopilot. That is the mandatory spending. And instead, uh, simply trying to squeeze it out of the discretionary part of the budget, now one-third, soon to be one-quarter, does put a lot of pressure on defense, which is more than half of that. So think about it in terms of 
You can't two increase thirds, defense even a little third. Right, right. Exactly. And, okay. uh, and so, yeah, it's absolutely necessary. And by the way, Bill Clinton, you missed. Barack Obama, you missed. Uh, both Presidents Bush, you missed. I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing that I think Republicans and Democrats can agree on is that we need to address this issue. How we address it <laughs> has become very controversial. Uh, but it's important to do so for the sake of our military, for the sake of these programs you talked about, including soft power uh, on the discretionary side, mm -hmm. uh, including dealing with the epidemic of uh, opioid use, right. the heroin issue we talked about, but also for the future for our kids and grandkids because right. a financial crisis will ensue. In other words, if you continue to have these huge debts and deficits every year and have uh, the mandatory spending on the healthcare side, it's about a 100% increase projected over the next 10 years. That's simply not sustainable. If you don't get us around, bond markets will. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, Abraham, Abraham Lincoln had a lot of great uh, uh, observations about the American political system, and one that he said that I think probably was curious at the time was we're more likely to be uh, destroyed from within than right. from without. Right. And so we do need to be sure that, that we you know, do something with this fiscal problem that has grown, and I think it's already putting tremendous pressure on the discretionary budget. Tax reform, two quotations, here's you. Senator Rob Portman quoted in May, quote, there is more consensus around tax reform than there is around health care, and I think there's an opportunity for Republicans to come together on an agenda that lowers taxes, close quote. Mm -hmm. Here's former Speaker of the House John Boehner also speaking in May, quote, tax reform is just a bunch of happy talk. Close quote. <laughs> Senator, Senator, what's the prospect? The administration wants tax reform. Mick Mulvaney, your successor at OMB, is saying we've got to get growth, 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 growth. We've got to get yep. growth up toward 3%. Have to have tax reform to do that. Is it happy talk? Uh, no, it, it has to be done. And by the way, when we talked about the fiscal situation, mm -hmm. the debt and deficit, uh, clearly uh, the most important thing to do is to restrain spending, uh, but also to grow the economy. Right. I mean, more revenue is how we deal with this and how we got to a balanced budget last time in the late 1990s. It was really through growth. The best way to grow the economy right now is a combination of things, regulatory relief, dealing with the health care costs, better skills training, ensuring trade works for us. But nothing is more important than tax reform. Why? Because the system is broken. So I'll stick by my earlier quote and say it's a shot in the arm of the economy, no question about it, if we do it right. And there is more consensus here than with regard to health care. Why was the sequence healthcare first, then we'll try to move on tax reform? Did the administration make a mistake? Um, I don't know if it was a mistake, but in retrospect, uh, you know, I think healthcare had a better prospect of finding that middle ground, that consensus, including some Democrats, and would have, uh, I think, helped to encourage us to have another success uh, with regard to healthcare. So infrastructure is another one where I think there's an opportunity for, for success, and perhaps combining tax reform and infrastructure a little bit might work because. Among the great opportunities with, health, with, with tax reform, and there's lots of them, right. is the fact that there's about two and a half or three trillion dollars locked up overseas, right. much of right. which could come back if we had the right kind of a tax code, with, which is called a territorial system, but right. also have a low rate for repatriation. Some of that funding uh, is needed to have a, a tax reform process work that doesn't blow a hole in the deficit, so right. that you know, it's revenue neutral based on dynamic scores and growth. But some of it could also be used to jumpstart some infrastructure projects that have great economic so benefit. So question about timing. You've already said that you think you'll get health care out, like you'll get a bill on health care for your colleagues to consider before the August recess. The president just last week gave a big infrastructure speech. Mm -hmm. And here you're saying, look, folks, everybody, everybody knows we need tax reform. Can we get those three items, health care, infrastructure, and tax reform 
to the floor for a vote before August, or am I dreaming? Uh, that would be very ambitious. All so right, I'm yeah, dreaming. I, I, I'm and, dreaming. And look, on, on health, but before on the end of the year, when you come back after the summer, health care, we're not there yet. So okay. you know, I said it's possible, but I, I, I certainly don't guarantee it because no one can. Um, again, to find 50 votes, which is where we are right now, is going to be challenging. With regard to tax reform, I think by the end of the calendar year, uh, we have an opportunity to complete that because I do think there's been a lot of work, a lot of thinking, a lot of hearings, uh, a lot of different proposals are out there, but they they kind of uh, focus on one issue, which is how do you get the rates down right. and broaden the base by simplifying the code, whether it's on the individual side or the business side. That's sort of a generalization. And then, again, there's just some great opportunities there because of the complexity of the code and because of the international system we have now that is uh, outdated, uh, antiquated, and it's not consistent with the way the rest of the world has moved, which puts us at a big disadvantage, which is why we're losing jobs and investment overseas. So there's a great opportunity there. Okay. All right. The Senate itself, filibuster rule, which mm -hmm. in effect requires 60 votes rather than a simple majority of 51 to get most forms of legislation enacted. Two quotations again. Here's President Trump in a tweet. You knew I had to quote a tweet of his before this conversation <laughs> ended. Quote, the U.S. Senate should switch to 51 votes immediately and get health care and tax cuts approved quick and easy. Those were his, his words, quick and easy. Yeah. Get rid of the filibuster and this becomes quick and easy, close yeah. quote. Here is your friend and colleague, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, also speaking this spring. Quote, there is not a single senator in the majority who thinks we ought to change the legislative filibuster. Not one, close quote. Why are you and Mitch McConnell being such sticks in the mud, Senator? <laughs> What's interesting, by the way, it would not surprise me if there was a tweet by Donald Trump while we were talking that you're about to ask me about. <laughs> That's happened to me twice when I've been on a live TV, live TV program and come in I'm, while I'm, you were... I'm presented with a, with a tweet and, and, uh, and the reporter just assumes that I must have somehow known it by ESP or something. So anyway, um, Donald Trump's tweet is interesting, as most of his are, because tax reform and health care reform are being done, as you know, under this 50-vote scenario. Right. Uh, so it's not subject to the filibuster. Uh, so, in fact, I, I would agree with him on those, and because they're being done under what's called budget reconciliation, which you can do as a special thing under the 74 Budget Act. It has to relate to the budget outlays or revenue and so on, so there, there's some restrictions to it, but that's how we're doing those. Right. The broader issue here with regard to general legislation, uh, I think Mitch McConnell's probably right. I don't know if I can speak for all my colleagues, but most of my colleagues look at this and think, let's see, the Democrats have had the majority for the most part over the last hundred years, and we would have a, a whole panoply of legislation that most Republicans would find very objectionable if we had not had the ability right. to stand up. Uh, as the founders intended, that the minority would have the opportunity to be heard. and. Um, so the question is, you know, what's going to be best for the country over the longer haul? And as you know, one of my concerns about the way our country is headed is that we're increasingly divided. Right. And I'd say, you know, division is one thing, polarization is another. Right. I mean, not just divided, but I think because of the way the Internet works, as wonderful it is in some respects, uh, it allows people to reaffirm their point of view and not look at the other side. I think cable TV is playing a role in this. Not this show, of course, because it's uncommonly good. Uh, but uh, I mean, I think, I think as a result, Peter, you see in Congress uh, the kind of polarization and division that makes it difficult to find common ground on even relatively simple things that in the past we'd be able to deal with. And so I think, if anything, we should be pushing for a system where you actually do figure out a way, in this case, you know, to get somewhere between 
you know, 10 and 2 Democrats or Republicans when you have the majority because you would have a 50, 51 vote majority and then you have to get to 60. And that's the way it has been done traditionally with Medicare, Medicaid, right. Social Security, all the big tax reform efforts, everything Ronald Reagan got through with Tip O'Neill. And we need to get back to that, uh, in part because you find you have better laws. Look at Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, as an example of something that got jammed through on a strictly partisan right. basis that's not working. Right. Uh, but in part because I think it would be a model, in a sense, and show leadership in terms of trying to get this country back together. Okay, let me, one more question on this. So it's not just Donald Trump. And I take the point. Mm -hmm. He says, quick and easy. We eliminate the filibuster, we get legislation through quickly and easily, and Senator Portman and Mitch McConnell say, yeah, all right. And the moment they regain the majority, it's quick and easy for them too. And we go flip, flipping and flopping back and forth, yeah. not good for the country. I get all that. However, here is Peter Wallison, a very distinguished lawyer yeah. at the American Enterprise, writing in the Wall Street Journal, quote, can there be any doubt that Democrats will eliminate the filibuster on legislation when they next control the Senate and the White House? Close quote. So Peter Wallison says, you are a high-minded and a patriot, Senator Portman, and I respect you for that. But you are also making it harder for you and your fellow Republicans to enact this president's agenda. And that means you are making it easier for the Democrats to recapture your Senate. And the moment they do, goodbye to the filibuster anyway. That's yeah, an well, argument, isn't it? It is. Again, the big priorities right now are tax reform and health care reform, both of which are not being done uh, right. the filibuster. Okay. So, fair, fair. so, you know, to the extent it's a matter of getting things done, uh, <laughs> the problem is not the filibuster. The problem is very complicated areas and finding 50 people, you know, working together and getting a, an agreement with the House. You know, the, the founders uh, did not intend this to be easy, Peter, as you know well, having written a lot about this. And, uh, it's sometimes frustrating with the balance of powers and, and with the minority rights, you know, having some say in the Senate. But at the end of the day, when you go through this process, uh, you know, you end up with the greatest uh, republic in the history of the world. And uh, America, uh, America is also the, the longest uh, lasting democracy in the world. You know, it's worked. And so I think we need to be careful. And, um, and also, I think we need to be cognizant of the fact that if we do uh, just assume the Democrats will switch back, uh, then maybe they will. If we don't, right. uh, then, then maybe uh, they too will see the light and realize this is not in their interest either. Certainly not in the country's interest for legislation that actually helps solve problems and is sustainable over time. All right. Um, the president. As best I can tell, all, nearly the entire Republican caucus in the Senate is in at least broad agreement with the president's agenda. You've talked mm -hmm. to yourself. Healthcare, tax reform, rebuilding the military, everybody agrees that has to I'd be I'd add done. infrastructure after this week. Infrastructure, yeah. His all right. proposals on the principles of infrastructure, I think, were broadly agreed to. I, I certainly thought they were on, on point. Okay. And Ill illegal immigration, even there are all kinds of different ways of arguing about the right number of immigrants to permit into the country. But everybody would say many years of illegal immigration undermined the rule of law and had to be addressed. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's right. All right. And then, of course, you get an originalist in the mold of Antonin Scalia in George Gorsuch to replace Antonin Scalia. All that, everybody's saying, got with, with, behind you on the agenda. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, and I will say this to spare your having to say it, <laughs> crude tweets, undisciplined remarks, the almost preternatural ability to undercut his own people and indeed even to undercut himself, he fires James Comey for very good reasons laid out carefully in a memorandum by the Assistant Attorney General. 
And then he says in an interview, oh, no, 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 I would have fired him anyway, and I fired him for entirely different reasons. Okay. So here's a problem. Um, you and your colleagues in the Senate are working politicians. Rob Portman figured out how to carry Ohio by almost, uh, t by more than twice the margin that the president himself carried Ohio. But how? Who's counting? But who's counting? Yeah. I'll count for you, Senator. <laughs> how? What's the approach here? How can the Senate support this agenda while, while putting some distance between itself? Do you feel the need to put distance between yourself? You want to, you want to avoid embracing the, the mode of operation. You want to be careful about this man's character. Is that not correct? Well, you just do the right thing. You know, you figure out uh, what the right policies are and you promote those. And uh, in my case, you try to encourage the president to focus on those policies. You know, he has a great opportunity to be able to give this economy a shot in the arm and to be able to increase wages, which to me is probably the biggest challenge we face right now. You know, slow economic growth makes it impossible, but even right. with better economic growth, that to me is not sufficient. We also have to figure out how to ensure that the people I represent and you know, people in the middle all over America have a chance to actually see that American dream that they envision. In other words, that their wages will start to go up again and their expenses will start to, at least uh, right. with regard to health care, uh, not go up as high as they've been. Because it the middle class squeeze is very real. So I think he has a chance to do that. We, and you've mentioned some of the ways to do it uh, with tax reform and regulatory relief and getting health care costs under control and doing something on infrastructure, which you know, should be bipartisan after all. But he's making it more difficult. By the, by, by the way, uh, as you stated well, he's going about uh, the process, and that distracts everybody from the task at hand. I will say that some of us uh, you know, are focused, and we're keeping our heads down and uh, focusing on the policy, and we're getting some things done, and sometimes quietly, uh, as we have recently with regard to the opioid issue, passed two right. bills on that. Uh, with regard to human trafficking, as you know, I've made some progress on that. Uh, to be able to push back against the traffickers and particularly online trafficking. And we've been able to do some things, um, you know, quietly with regard to regulations, uh, with regard to these Congressional Review Acts to take away some of the burden on the economy. And, of course, uh, the confirmation of Neil Gorsuch, who I saw last week, who you're right, is a, is a fine person, high integrity, great, char great character, and also understands and good the jurist. rule of the Constitution. Right. Yeah, right, right. Exactly. So, okay, final set of questions here. You and I both lived through, we can both remember the 1980s, class of 78, class of 79, we remember the 1980s. And that was a time, I think it is fair to say, looking back, of genuine, deep renewal. The economy began to grow again, the United States of America rebuilt its defenses and won the Cold War, and there was a resurgence in the sense of national morale and patriotism. And the question is, whether the country has a chance like that again. You've said the president has a good program. If he would stick with the program, it's a good program. But here's the question. Unlike some Republicans who fixate on policy and seem to drift away from any feeling for the way he, Americans actually lead their lives, you pay close attention to life on the ground in Ohio. Opioid, opioid crisis sex trafficking. I just looked up these statistics the other day, back when the, uh, Patrick Moynihan issued his famous report in 1965, warning about the, the steady disintegration, this, these are his words, the steady disintegration of the African-American family structure and the out-of-wedlock birth rate among African-Americans then was 25%. 
Today, whites, 30%, Hispanics, 53%, African-Americans, 72%. So do we have a country where the underlying social fabric is simply so frayed that, God bless you, I hope you get healthcare worked out. I hope you get the president paying attention to the program. But somehow or other, there's a substructure of life as it's lived on the ground in this country that the federal government really just can't get to it. Things are, there's a sense of disintegration. How do you, I know you feel that, and you, but, you must, but you being you will have thought it through. How do you think about that? Well, I'm ultimately optimistic, and I think the federal government does have a role here. It's not the central role, by the way. The central role will happen uh, you know, at the local community level, uh, in our families, in our hearts. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, I, will, I will make light of what you said and, and, and remind people who are watching that President Reagan's speechwriter at the time was Peter Robinson, who was, who was able in an eloquent way you know, to lift the country up. Uh, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall is an example. 30 which, years ago, which were your words. Um, so, I mean, there is a, a need for some inspiration uh, at the federal level and, and a president who can bring us together as a country. I mentioned earlier my deep concerns about the division I see and the polarization. And, uh, you know, Barack Obama promised it. It didn't happen when he was at his convention uh, before he ran the first time. He mm -hmm. talked about the fact that we're not um, red states and blue states, we're the red, white, and blue states, and that we need to bring people together. And he actually went like, like this, and mm -hmm. I agree with that. And I think that's what's needed, and I think that, that will help. Uh, but it is deeper, it's cultural, it's societal, and it has to do with uh, our country, you know, getting back to what has made us so special, in my view, which is the primacy of the individual, which is people feeling like if they work hard and play by the rules, they can get ahead. That's why I mentioned the, the wage issue. With regard to this issue we talked about earlier on healthcare, we've got to be sure that people who are on Medicaid now do have a chance to get to that next ladder of economic success, uh, the next rung on that ladder, and mm -hmm. move their way up. That's the idea. Uh, and this is why I mentioned the innovative programs you could have in the states. So I'm, I'm optimistic, ultimately, that we can get back, not just to a better spirit in this country of us working together as patriots and as Americans, but in dealing with some of these fundamental problems you talked about. Uh, you, you could say, I suppose, that uh, you know, you have to be optimistic if you're in my business. Otherwise, why would you stay at this crazy business, uh, particularly what's going on in Washington today? But I will tell you, I've seen it. I mean, when I'm home and I'm at a drug treatment center and I meet a young woman who, at age 14, became addicted mm -hmm. to heroin and is now one of the people on the other side of the table as a counselor in recovery, and she's helping other people to be able to regain their lives, which I saw two weeks ago in Ohio, and I've probably met a 1,000 people in recovery or who are addicted in the last couple of years. There are plenty of hopeful stories, and there's plenty of opportunity if we provide people with the right tools. Ultimately, I, I guess I have confidence in the people I represent and the American people that will rise to the occasion, but leadership in Washington is part of it. All right, two last questions. Tomorrow morning, your daughter will graduate from Dartmouth College. What advice would you like to give to her and her classmates that you wish someone had told you <laughs> when you were 22 years old and graduated oh from this institution yourself? Oh my gosh. Uh, it's a good question, and uh, congratulations to your son, Nico. Thank you. On his graduation and his prowess as a Ivy League decathlon champ, which means he can do everything, right? Uh, like that's the way he describes it to me, yeah. yes. Yeah. yes. Um, you know, I, I, I'll harken back to something my grandfather used to write me notes. He, he was not a college graduate, but he was in his own way a successful entrepreneur. Uh, he was an innkeeper at a hotel and restaurant for 50 years. And uh, 
he used to write this, this thing uh, at the end of his notes to me, be ever kind and true, which hmm. he thought was, you know, uh, inappropriate. He, he sort of took it from the New Testament, you know, and, you know, so you're kind and generous and you're honest, you're true, be ever kind and true. I would add to that, and I have with my kids, a, another part of that, which is, and work hard. You know, I mean, it's not that no one told me that, but because I grew up in an entrepreneurial family and my dad did work hard, my mom worked hard, but I mean, this notion that somehow everything's going to be given to you is, right. is not what makes our country special. And instead, what it is is that, as, as one wise man once told me, um, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Right. In other words, luck and entitlement isn't the key to success. It is hard work, and, and it is being honest and, and you know, being generous and and kind, and that combination actually actually works. Uh, in our society, we have problems, as you said, right. and plenty of challenges, and some people have uh, you know come through a situation that is much much tougher than than I had or or my daughter or your right. son has had. And so our job here is to kind of level that playing field to give them a chance, and uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, continue to be as a country that beacon of hope an opportunity for the rest of the world. Last question. Here's the philosopher Roger Scruton writing this spring in the Wall Street Journal, quote, elites nowadays build trust through career moves, joint projects, and cooperation across borders. Like the aristocrats of old, they often form networks without reference to national boundaries, close quote. So the students who will graduate tomorrow, your daughter Sally, my son Nico, are all gifted. They've all been beautifully educated, and they all have the opportunity, should they choose to do so, to join this kind of international, global elite. Why should they remain loyal to this country? Why do this country's borders still matter? What would you say to them? How would you persuade them that in the year 2017, facing the opportunities that they face, including the subtle urgings to, the, to be members of the new, to be citizens of the world, why would you say to yeah. them that the United States of America still matters? Well, I, I used the words a moment ago, a beacon of hope and opportunity. And if you look historically at the role we have played, uh, I mentioned as the world's uh, uh, longest uh, successful democracy, uh, we have served that role. And I remember uh, once I was, uh, had the opportunity to uh, be overseas and uh, then Secretary of State Colin Powell had recently had a press conference, and this was when we had gone into Iraq. Mm -hmm. And the European journalists around him at this conference were convinced that America was going to Iraq to take the oil, right. which in retrospect, of course, not only weren't we, but we didn't. And I remember public opinion polls at the time in Europe said 80% of Europeans believed that, a sort of a cynical view of why the U.S. would get involved right. anywhere. Uh, you can remember Kuwait, where we you know, liberated a country. For what? For the fact that these people were being taken over in that case by Saddam Hussein, and we thought it was our, our job as a moral leader to lead others to do so. Anyway, the person said, uh, you're going for the oil. And he said, no, actually, we're not. And the European journalist uh, persisted. And Colin Powell looked him in the eye and said, sir, we've come to your continent twice in the last century uh, to free you from a despot in World War I and to free you from the Nazis in World War II. And we have sacrificed hundreds of thousands of our best and brightest to do so. All we ever asked in return was enough land to bury our dead. And those are those beautiful American cemeteries that you and I have both seen with the crosses mm -hmm. and the Star of David. And uh, that's, 
an incredible heritage that we are now inheriting and our kids are inheriting. And uh, that concept of who we are as a country uh, continues today overseas. People still look at us, despite what the international elite might, might think. Right. Uh, people vote with their feet and they want to come here. They view us as a land of opportunity and where, you know, again, if you work hard and play by the rules, you can get ahead and you can live in freedom. And that, I think, is why we all have a responsibility to give back and to ensure that we're focused on keeping America strong uh, for the sake of our citizens, but also to provide that model for the rest of the world. Rob Portman, a member of the Dartmouth College class of 1978, the father of a member of the Dartmouth College class of 2017, and the junior senator from the great state of Ohio. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. For Uncommon Knowledge and the Hoover Institution, I'm Peter Robinson. Thank you.